Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Friday, May 19th, 2023, the 849th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't, or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free on Substack and a wide variety of podcast platforms. And of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So on Wednesday, we were talking about a couple of election results around the country and what that implies about the Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis dynamic that is developing in our politics. Daniel Cameron, the attorney general of Kentucky, won his primary to become the Republican nominee for governor of Kentucky. That race is going to be 
decided this November. Ron DeSantis, for whatever reason, endorsed a candidate in that primary. His candidate finished third. That candidate's husband is a major donor and former Romney backer. And the working theory is that DeSantis was trying to win favor with a donor from the Republican establishment class in Jacksonville. A Democrat won the race for mayor there, something that should not be possible right now in Florida or in the country. Republicans are riding a major wave of momentum as the illegitimate Biden administration falls apart and all of the policies that they've pursued in their global regime agenda wreak havoc on this nation. We're told that Ron DeSantis is very popular. Florida is where woke goes to die. Florida's elections are very safe and very secure. There are all sorts of Republicans coming into Florida from around the country, and everybody loves Ron DeSantis. So how is it possible that a Democrat becomes mayor of a major Florida city, especially when that Florida city is in an area that DeSantis won by 12 points? We saw a 16-point swing over the course of seven months. That should not be possible. Now, those results pretty clearly strike directly at DeSantis's argument that he is the most electable. And coming on the heels of that bad news, DeSantis held a call with donors and invited the New York Times to listen in. This is the article from the Times yesterday in the afternoon. Biden and me, DeSantis privately tells donors Trump can't win. Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida all but declared his presidential candidacy on Thursday afternoon, telling donors and supporters on a call that only three quote unquote credible candidates were in the race and that only he would be able to win both the Republican primary and the general election. You have basically three people at this point that are credible in this whole thing. Mr. DeSantis told donors on the call, organized by the super PAC supporting him, never back down. Biden, Trump, and me. And I think of those three, two have a chance to get elected president, Biden and me, based on all the data in the swing states, which is not great for the former president and probably insurmountable because people aren't going to change their view of him. So this is what Ron DeSantis is now saying on phone calls. I've played the clip a couple times this week where DeSantis talked about how Republicans had lost in 2018, 2020, and 2022, accepting that all of the election results were true as supported. There was no fraud. It was all just Donald Trump's fault. He doesn't have what it takes to win. And that's why the people with the little R's next to their names have been losing. It's not because the RNC doesn't fight against the Uniparty's election fraud. It's not because conservative media ignores election fraud. It's not because conservative establishment politicians like Ron DeSantis, for instance, ignore election fraud. It's because Donald Trump is around and that makes Republicans look very bad. And so people just won't vote for them, even though Donald Trump was president for four years. And at the end of those four years, his total number of votes from 2016 to 2020 raised by a full 20 percent. So for as much as we're told that everybody hates Donald Trump, it doesn't seem to be playing out that way in real life. As for people not changing their view on Donald Trump, 
Well, that's disproven all the time, including by that vote total in 2020 for as much as we can take that to be real. His total raised 20 percent. That's after four years in office. And at that point, five years of him being on the news and in people's face all the time. Since then, people have woken up to the fact that the global regime's agenda is incredibly destructive for this country and that Donald Trump was working to thwart that agenda. Despite 10 or 15 different versions of underlying coups throughout his presidency, despite all of the powerful people in the world and all of the media in the world being fully against Donald Trump, and despite all the confusion and the false public narratives about COVID and mail-in balloting and election fraud and the very violent insurrection, Donald Trump's numbers continue to improve And he is by far the most popular person in the Republican Party and more popular than Joe Biden nationwide. They just continue to say these things because there is a sense in the quote unquote educated class, the people who believe whatever the news and the experts tell them that Donald Trump really is hated. So none of these numbers and none of what you are actually able to observe in real life matters at all. But back to this article in the Times, and by the way, it's from Maggie Haberman, Jonathan Swan, and some guy named Nicholas Nahamas, who I've never heard of, but I always find it rather amazing that they need two of their star reporters and another guy just to churn out this article about a phone call. The call, to which a New York Times reporter listened, came as the governor is expected to enter the presidential race next week, according to three people familiar with his intentions. So apparently the listener from the New York Times to this phone call was none of the three people with bylines on this article. I wonder who it was. Mr. DeSantis is expected to file paperwork declaring his candidacy with the Federal Election Commission ahead of a major fundraising meeting with donors in Miami on May 25th. That is meant to act as a show of his financial force. He must formally enter the race before he can solicit donations for his presidential campaign. He is also likely to release a video to coincide with his official entrance into the race. And a blitz of events in the early nominating states will follow in the weeks ahead, according to one of the people. The Wall Street Journal first reported that Mr. DeSantis would file paperwork next week. It's interesting that he is going to release a video to launch his campaign, just like Joe Biden did. Why isn't Ron DeSantis holding a massive rally and showing the country that he has this base of popular support who can't wait to support Ron in the primary and then go out and vote for him in the general? I mean, Trump is hated, so DeSantis must be loved. Can't he get a big crowd at a rally? Isn't that the way to show people that you really are the one to lead the Republican Party into the future? During the donor call, Mr. DeSantis did not mention his battle with Disney, which on Thursday pulled out of a $1 billion office development project in Orlando. And he spent little time discussing divisive cultural subjects on the call, which included many business officials who do not favor his aggressive stance on those issues. So, Business officials, corporate leaders don't want Ron DeSantis to talk about wokeness and ESG. That's what we're being told 
by the New York Times. And Ron, knowing that they didn't like that stuff, didn't mention it because he didn't want to upset the corporate donors and business leaders. That's the kind of bold leadership we need. He said the attitude of Republican voters amounted to, we've got to win this time. And while he praised Trump's policies, he said that Mr. Biden had undone many of them. The corporate media wants Trump to be the nominee, Mr. DeSantis said, adding that journalists, other candidates and two presidents had targeted him with criticism. Mr. DeSantis quoted a voter he had talked with at an event in Iowa as saying, you know, Trump was somebody we liked his policies, but we didn't like his values. And with you, we like your policies, but also know that you share our values. Mr. DeSantis described his efforts to help the party, noting that Mr. Trump and other Republicans had repeatedly attacked him. There are just some that kind of raise money just for themselves, he said, an unmistakable jab at Mr. Trump, who was criticized during the midterm elections for sitting on a large pile of cash in his political action committee and not doing enough to help others. So Ron DeSantis is the guy that's really going to help the Republican Party, whereas Donald Trump takes his donations directly and helps candidates of his choosing rather than establishment Republicans who are committed to thwarting the America First movement, which is exactly what Donald Trump should do. It's strange that Ron DeSantis doesn't complain more about the National Republican Party, who failed to help all sorts of America First candidates across the country. They actively undermined the campaigns of America First candidates across the country. Why wasn't that a problem? I thought we were supposed to help the people with the little R next to their names. And this is a dynamic that we can see playing out online now as well, talking about the social media influencers, in quotes, because they don't really have the power to influence anyone, who are supporting the DeSantis effort and have been since late October of last year. When Trump did the CNN town hall last week, they said that Donald Trump was now the candidate of the mainstream media. You saw DeSantis mention it there. The corporate media wants Donald Trump to run so that they can make so many profits. We've been told that over and over again. It was all about the media profits. They like Trump for the ratings, and they're actually going to support him to be the nominee so that they can get all those ratings, and then Joe Biden's going to win. That's the nightmare scenario. But the media has done nothing but attack Donald Trump nonstop for the last almost eight years. We are a month away from it being eight years since Trump came down the escalator. And we are told that Donald Trump has been the great beneficiary of all this media activity, as if all of that media activity and the constant ridiculous attacks against Donald Trump, the constant attacks against his character, his reputation, his personality, his businesses, on and on and on, aren't the reason that so much of this country has Trump derangement syndrome and hates the guy. Donald Trump would be sailing through all of this with the general public if it weren't for that media. They have also tried telling us that Donald Trump is basically a Democrat and he's a rhino and he's even a globalist compared to Ron DeSantis. None of that makes any sense at all unless you are completely committed to the Democrat-Republican paradigm that by and large does not exist anymore. These establishment Republicans and the people 
influencing on behalf of Ron, see commitment to the Republican Party and its establishment as the definition of being Republican. It's not about ideology. It's not about principles. It's not about conserving anything about America. It's about being committed to the Republican Party. So the uniparty right, you have to be committed to the uniparty right or else you are not a Republican. That's what makes you a Republican in name only. And if the uniparty right and the uniparty left were the only options and you were supporting the other option, then maybe that would be accurate. But those aren't the only options. And the Republican Party now is no longer primarily the uniparty right party. The GOP, the Republican Party, the Republican brand have all been taken over by Donald Trump and MAGA. There's no going back on that. And of course, we're talking about people who by and large went along with the entire covid narrative, with the vaccine narrative, covering up election fraud, going along with the insurrection. They're the ones who think that America first supporters, MAGA supporters really are exactly the people the media describes them to be. They're the extremists, they're uneducated, they're rubes, they're cult members, blah, blah, blah. And they're attacking on the basis of people not being Republican enough. You can't be a Republican unless you support the Republican establishment. And if you're not supporting the Republican establishment, then you're a Democrat or you're a rhino or you're a globalist. And that's coming out of the mouths of people who are rhinos and globalists and on the most important issues in the country, almost completely aligned with Democrats. And I just listed some of those issues. There's no more important issue than election fraud. And all of them pretend it doesn't exist, including Ron DeSantis. Now, there definitely are some Republicans out there supporting DeSantis who have been on the right side of some of those issues throughout the last few years, but all of them, all of them ignore the election fraud issue. And they have to ignore the election fraud issue because if they admitted that election fraud was real, the entire argument for Ron DeSantis would disappear and they would be exposed as the regime stooges that they are. And that is what they are. They are supporting the regime by denying the presence of election fraud when it is obvious, overwhelming and destroying our country. They are keeping the uniparty system in place in general, but particularly with elections while they're trying to call Donald Trump a globalist. It's absolutely nuts. And the New York Times article goes on filling in Ron DeSantis's backstory at length. They talk about how much campaign money he has backing him and all his conservative accomplishments in Florida makes you wonder if Ron DeSantis is actually the candidate of the mainstream media establishment. The National Pulse covered this today in an article with the headline undeclared DeSantis hosts donor call with New York Times says Biden and me are electable. They recap some of what was said in the New York Times and then write, while for some it originally appeared as though Trump was turning on a former ally who had done him no wrong, revelations of DeSantis's efforts to undermine the former president out of the public eye explain why he recognized the governor's betrayal early and acted accordingly. In terms of DeSantis's claims to be a more viable candidate than Trump, Rich Barris of Big Data Poll summed it up as, 
the same electability argument used by John McCain, Mitt Romney and Jeb Bush, largely informed by the same pollsters, adding Republican voters didn't believe it in 2016 and they don't now. He added eight to 12 percent of 2020 Biden voters routinely tell us they have changed their minds and would vote for Trump in a rematch. DeSantis's concern should be the 18 percent of Trump supporters who say they will only vote for Trump. So eight to 12 percent of 2020 Biden voters say they have already changed their mind and will vote for Donald Trump next year. And Trump has 18 percent, according to this polling. But honestly, I believe it to be much higher of people who will not vote for anyone but Trump. And I would include myself in that. If Ron DeSantis, quote unquote, wins the primary, my reaction, and I think most of MAGA's reaction, will be to convince Trump to run on a third party ticket. But all of that talk is kind of irrelevant now because we're talking about a potential event a year away. And over the course of that year, people are going to continue waking up to what is really going on in this country. And they're certainly going to know a hell of a lot more about election fraud People are learning a lot about it right now with Kerry Lake's trial ongoing and the presence of widespread election fraud across the country gets harder to deny when you see people like John Fetterman, who can't make his way through a sentence, standing up, participating in a press conference with his fellow senators while wearing a Carhartt hoodie, totally unable to read his prepared remarks. People are going to learn quite a lot over the next year, and all of that is going to convince them that Donald Trump was right the entire time. It's not going to convince them that Ron DeSantis is really, really great. Now, one of the funniest things about this announcement of an announcement of an announcement for Ron DeSantis is that while all of that is playing out, other establishment Republicans are being reported at least to be ready to announce their own runs. Chris Sununu from New Hampshire, an absolute clown. Chris Christie, the former New Jersey governor, is planning to announce. And Tim Scott is planning to announce. So three other establishment Republican candidates to add on to Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy. And there's still some talk of Glenn Youngkin jumping into the race. So why would all of these establishment Republicans be joining in the primary race while Ron DeSantis jumps in the very same time? We hear that DeSantis is sure to announce next week. And now three other candidates say, oh, yeah, 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 we're going to announce next week, too. Does that seem normal? It doesn't to me. Now, we've talked extensively on this podcast over the last seven months about the chances that this whole Ron DeSantis thing is a head fake. Ron DeSantis may not actually run. We just have this push behind him to convince him to run. And I've said over and over again that the odds of that being true continue to diminish as far as I'm concerned, but it's still possible. So the thing is, if Ron DeSantis is the candidate of the establishment, as it seems to be, for the last seven months, then why are these other establishment candidates getting in right now? I mean, they're all going to split the anti-Trump vote. If somebody is for Trump, they're voting for Trump. 
They're not voting for Ron DeSantis. They weren't waiting around for Tim Scott and Glenn Youngkin and Chris Sununu and Chris Christie to get in the race so they could then switch their vote away from Trump. There's no Trump supporter out there who's not going to end up supporting Trump. If you're on board with Trump right now, you're staying on board. So why are these other establishment candidates considering getting in? Wouldn't they just dilute Ron DeSantis's support? And if they did that, then DeSantis has a lower chance of winning. So is the establishment supporting all of this? That would be a bad strategy. We've been told for months now that it was likely that if DeSantis announced, it would be at the end of May or beginning of June. So we are on schedule for that. This is the time where the media and all of the analysts told us that Ron might announce he would wait till the end of the legislative session in Florida, and that's coming up, and then he would announce. And the thought was that the legislature would have to pass the election bill allowing Ron to run for president without resigning as Florida governor. Now, I didn't realize this early on, but in Florida, if the legislature passes a bill, the governor doesn't actually have to sign it into law. The governor can just ignore it completely and it will eventually become law. Ron DeSantis doesn't seem like he's about to veto that legislation. So that would mean that under DeSantis, Florida has passed an election integrity bill that reduces election integrity and also allows DeSantis to run for president without resigning as governor. So there is a very strange dynamic developing here with the Republican establishment and the efforts to keep Donald Trump from being the Republican Party's nominee. The polls are still in his favor. A Harvard-Harris poll that just came out with data compiled over the last two days has Donald Trump nationwide at 58% in the Republican primary and Ron DeSantis at 16%. Trump has gone up by three points over the last month and DeSantis has dropped by four. So the electability argument all told is senseless. And the other arguments are always that Ron DeSantis did something marginally better than Donald Trump, even though those arguments always fall apart on their face. And none of it matters more than the fact that Ron DeSantis ignores election fraud, including in his own state. The UFC fighter Colby Covington was on Tim Pool's show last night and said this about Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump while wearing a Make America Great Again hat. Do you think, I mean, how would you feel about like a a DeSantis Trump ticket if something like that were possible? Do you think that DeSantis should strictly stay in Florida if there were or if there was an opportunity for him and Trump to work together? Would you be in favor of that? I mean, I'd definitely be in favor of it if there if there was that opportunity. But Mm -hmm. you could tell that DeSantis doesn't want to take a back seat. He feels like entitled, like he's America's governor right now. Like he's he's not ready for the national stage. You know, Donald Trump will walk circles around him in a political debate. So. You know, I, I think Carrie Lake would be a great, you know, mm. vice president uh, candidate for for Trump. You know, she she's a very smart uh, intellectual lady. So I think that would be the right candidate. I think, you know, we still got unfinished business in Florida. You know, we need to, you know, all the policies that he's doing, he needs to finish that. And, you know, we need Trump back in office. Obviously, his policies worked and, you know, inflation was at an all time low. You know, our economy was booming. You know, our borders were secure. We America was first. And, yeah. You know, I think that DeSantis is controlled opposition. I think he is. Really? I do think he is, yeah. 
Now, I'm not saying anybody should just go with the opinion of a UFC fighter. And I suppose it's possible that Ron decides not to run. And so the controlled opposition thing may in fact be wrong. But Tim Pool's got a big audience of people who probably consider themselves centrist, and they are getting a pretty sizable portion of Donald Trump support from that show at this point. So we'll see. Maybe Ron DeSantis will announce next week. Maybe it'll even be right in the middle of the national celebration of St. George Floyd's Day, which is coming up. And who knows? Maybe the communists have some rioting and mayhem plans in store. Maybe they'll find a whole new race hoax to stoke division over the next week. So we haven't been spending much time on Twitter files lately, and that's because there haven't been many Twitter files lately. That whole info op seems to have hit some sort of stopping point. We were supposed to get all sorts of stuff that we haven't gotten. If that's a black mark against Elon Musk, so be it. Obviously, there may be other explanations, but there have been a couple released over the last few days by a man named Paul Thacker. On Wednesday, he wrote a thread on some internal emails at Twitter that he reviewed when he was at their headquarters in San Francisco. They had essentially been targeting individual reporters to help them in their process of dealing with mis- and disinformation. And they compiled lists of bullet points about individual reporters and their relationships with Twitter, the things they were doing online, the sorts of mis and dis and malinformation they'd been targeting, whether it was anything done by Marjorie Taylor Greene, stuff from QAnon and 4chan boards. Twitter was figuring out who was on their side and who could be trusted inside their mutually beneficial relationships. Thacker's thread from yesterday discussed something we talked about at some point late last year. But the story back then was about a Twitter thread that an unknown user had done on reporters like Taylor Lorenz and Ben Collins from MSNBC about how they were basically just spoiled rich kids who were the products of nepotism and just insane Twitter bullies. So here's that thread. Twitter provided privilege access to banning queen Taylor Lorenz. Twitter engineer walking me through their reporting system said, wow, she's a heavy user. Shortly after Elon Musk bought Twitter, Taylor Lorenz got apoplectic, writing that Twitter was, quote, opening the gates of hell by letting banned accounts back. The month prior, Taylor Lorenz got this tiny account banned. The account detailed Lorenz as a Manhattan rich girl who attended a Swiss boarding school and whose uncle owns Internet Archive, thus erasing her past. Twitter's community notes actually left a note on the Twitter files reporting, and that note says the Internet Archive is a nonprofit organization chaired by Brewster Call, thus no single individual owns the Internet Archive. So I suppose we owe a thank you to Community Notes for clearing that very important fact up. But did that account violate Twitter's rules? Nope. No ban evasion, abuse, harassment toward Taylor Lorenz, platform manipulation, or the sharing of personal information. 
The account was generally healthy and mostly conversational or commentary in nature. And we might as well pause to discuss how ridiculous this standard is. Is the account healthy or not healthy? Oh, they're not contributing the right way to our community. Therefore, we have to ban them. But also, we're totally into free speech. These standards are ridiculous, by the way, which is part of the reason why I act the way I do on Twitter, because there is no requirement in free speech standards that you have to be nice to terrible people. And I don't think that we are morally responsible for being nice to terrible people online either. I think it's okay to make fun of them and occasionally say mean things to them. No one's out there protecting me from mean things being said. They're not protecting me from being censored and banned off the platforms. The people actually doing the banning and doing the doxing and starting public shame mobs are protected by Twitter. Their accounts aren't labeled unhealthy, even though they are actually putting people, quote unquote, at risk. Back to Thacker. Nonetheless, Twitter suspended the account because it violates the Twitter media policy. The account then deactivated. A month prior to that, Lorenz went after Jay Bhattacharya for tweeting an email by her friend and itinerant blogger Walker Bragman. Bhattacharya tweeted a harassing email Bragman sent him, and it had Bragman's contact info. Bragman played all this up on Twitter, of course, to call attention to himself, retweeting Bhattacharya's tweet before people made fun of him for quote-unquote doxing himself. Manhattan rich kids playing at journalists are easily bruised, it seems. Bragman's game is to constantly accuse people of being coke-funded. FYI, Soros funded me to give the plenary talk at a 2019 BMJ conference on investigative journalism, but that does not make me a Soros-funded journalist. Apparently, Paul Thacker is a bit of a confused fellow. I do not know how they selected these reporters for the Twitter files. It is utterly absurd to say that Soros funded me to give a talk, but I am not a Soros-funded journalist. Maybe he's making the distinction that his journalism work is not specifically done on behalf of George Soros with George Soros paying him, but he has been funded before by George Soros. And perhaps that's a totally justifiable distinction, but it sounds a little ridiculous. I'll leave that to you to decide how you feel about it. Several of Lorenz's past reporting targets tell me she seems to work in concert with her sources. After Lorenz doxed libs of TikTok in the post, Alejandro Caraballo sent Twitter a private letter to remove libs of TikTok. Lorenz quoted Caraballo in the post that next month. The letter was sent by Caraballo and several groups, including the Center for Countering Digital Hate, a favored source in Lorenz's essays on banning. I asked Caraballo what came of that meeting with Twitter and to see the letter they sent, but got no response. I also don't know if Libs of TikTok was successful in getting Caraballo suspended for harassment. It's hard to understand Lorenz's concerns about doxing when she has done this so many times herself. Here's one allegation in a defamation lawsuit by at Little Miss Jacob against Lorenz that is still working its way through the courts. And it gives a screenshot of a page of that lawsuit that says Lorenz included a hyperlink to an address on Zillow 
which turned out to be none other than that of the KND house where Jacob was living at the time. So she tweeted a link to Zillow of the house where this person was staying. Lorenz had more than special reporting access to get accounts banned. When Tucker Carlson did a piece ridiculing her, Twitter put out an alert. We need to be careful with her. And he includes an attachment of a screenshot discussing unified escalations. That's when cases need to be pushed up to higher levels so that people can deal with those cases. The email said, I think she's going to be in the center of an abuse campaign on the platform. She's had tremendous trouble with abuse on here before, and we need to be careful with her. Thacker said he wasn't able to find evidence of them doing that for anyone else. Taylor also provided special support to a source in stories she wrote for the Atlantic New York Times and recently for the Post. When Jackson Weimer's account was suspended, Lorenz put this in front of Twitter. She basically emailed Twitter asking them to fix this account suspension. Lorenz has incredibly unorthodox reporting tactics. And the thread goes on listing examples of Taylor Lorenz's own personal special access to the high levels of Twitter so that she could protect herself and her friends and associates while going after accounts that caused her problems. And for the record, this is absolutely nothing new and absolutely something that happens regularly on all social media platforms. I've said this before. I used to work in celebrity and brand social media management back when I was in Hollywood and social media managers and social media management companies do have contacts at the social media platforms who are literally employed to make sure that high profile users on their platforms can be protected. They're there to assist in these sorts of situations and it happens absolutely all the time on all of the platforms. So while there weren't any major revelations in these new Twitter files, and I'm not sure Paul Thacker knows what he's doing, I figured it was worth it because yesterday we have this from CNBC. Supreme Court ruling continues to protect Google, Facebook, and Twitter from what users post. The Supreme Court declined to address the legal liability shield that protects tech platforms from being held responsible for their users' posts, the court said in an unsigned opinion Thursday. The decision leaves in place for now a broad liability shield that protects companies like Twitter, Meta's Facebook and Instagram, as well as Google's YouTube from being held liable for their users' speech on their platforms. The court's decision in these cases will serve as a big sigh of relief for tech platforms for now, but many members of Congress are still itching to reform the legal liability shield. In the case Gonzalez versus Google, the court said it would, quote, decline to address the application, end quote, of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, the law that protects platforms from their users' speech and also allows the services to moderate or remove users' posts. The court said it made that decision because the complaint, quote, appears to state little, if any, plausible claim for relief. The Supreme Court will send the case back to a lower court to reconsider in light of its decision on a separate but similar case, Twitter versus Tomney. 
In that case, the family of an American victim of a terrorist attack sought to hold Twitter accountable under anti-terrorism law for allegedly aiding and abetting the attack by failing to take enough action against terrorist content on its platform. In a decision written by Justice Clarence Thomas, the court ruled that such a claim could not be brought under that statute. Quote, as alleged by plaintiffs, defendants designed virtual platforms and knowingly failed to do enough to remove ISIS-affiliated users and ISIS-related content out of hundreds of millions of users worldwide and an immense ocean of content from their platforms. Yet plaintiffs had failed to allege that defendants intentionally provided any substantial aid to the Reyna attack or otherwise consciously participated in the Reyna attack, much less that defendants so pervasively and systemically assisted ISIS as to render them liable for every ISIS attack, he added, referring to the nightclub in Istanbul where the terrorist attack took place. Many lawmakers see Section 230 as an unnecessary protection for a massive industry, though its proponents say the law also protects smaller players from costly lawsuits, since it helps to dismiss cases about users' speech at an earlier stage. Still, lawmakers remain divided on the form such changes should take, meaning there are still massive hurdles to get it done. This decision, leaving Section 230 untouched, is an unambiguous victory for online speech and content moderation. Jess Myers, legal counsel for Meta and the Google-backed Chamber of Progress, said in a statement, while the court might once have had an appetite for reinterpreting decades of internet law, it was clear from oral arguments that changing Section 230's interpretation would create more issues than it would solve. Ultimately, the court made the right decision. Section 230 has made possible the Internet as we know it. This is a huge win for free speech on the Internet. Chris Marchese, litigation center director for Net Choice, a group whose members include Google, Meta, Twitter and TikTok, said in a statement, the court was asked to undermine Section 230 and declined. So Section 230 remains in place. Now, part of that is all right, because I don't personally believe that the platform's should be responsible for everything that is said on the platforms. The problem arises when the platforms use that protection to be able to take speech off of their platforms whenever they want. Now, people have looked at Section 230 as the key to fixing the problems of censorship. And they always say that we have to accept the censorship. We have to accept that the platforms are allowed to do that because if we don't, then we exist in a world where platforms can be held accountable for everything that's on there. Now, that is a false dichotomy. That's just not true. That exists because of the way Section 230 is written and has been interpreted. But there are other approaches here. And I think that the success will ultimately be attained through those other approaches. The clear fact at this point is that the government coordinated with these social media platforms to censor the speech of American citizens. This is a First Amendment issue, and this is about the government delegating to private companies, in quotes, that which they're not allowed by the Constitution to do themselves. That's the heart of the issue, and I think that that's where we will ultimately get that win. Decisions about Section 230 don't really 
move the needle for me all that much because I don't think that's the attack vector in the first place. And none of this surprises me. This is from Becker News today. New Senate bill would create federal agency to police Americans for misinformation and hate speech. A new Senate bill would create a federal agency to police American speech for misinformation and hate speech if passed by the Congress. The bill was brought forth by Colorado Senator Michael Bennett and is dubbed the Digital Platform Commission Act. As the senator announced, the legislation would create an expert federal body empowered to provide comprehensive sector-specific regulation of digital platforms to protect consumers, promote competition, and defend the public interest. And what a glorious example of Orwellian doublespeak. They're going to protect consumers by making sure that consumers can still be censored. They're going to promote competition by making sure that all the platforms are able to censor. And they're going to defend the public interest by defending corporations because corporations are people, my friend. The commission would have a broad mandate to promote the public interest with specific directives to protect consumers, promote competition and assure the fairness and safety of algorithms on digital platforms, among other areas. The senator's statement added to fulfill its mandate. The commission would have the authority to promulgate rules, impose civil penalties, hold hearings, conduct investigations, and support research. It could also designate systemically important digital platforms subject to additional oversight, regulation, and merger review. So basically just broad sweeping authority for the government to regulate speech on social media platforms, something the government is not supposed to do. The Digital Platform Commission Act has garnered support from various experts and organizations. Former Federal Communications Commission Chairman Tom Wheeler commends the bill for modernizing national policies and introducing an agile regulatory model suitable for the digital age. Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser emphasizes the need for federal action and a regulatory framework to protect citizens in the online world. Public Knowledge, a nonprofit organization, endorses the bill as a consumer-centered approach to holding online platforms accountable. Other supporters include the Center for Humane Technology, communication and technology policy experts from Georgetown University and Yale School of Management, and various advocacy groups concerned with the impact of digital platforms on democracy, youth, and public health. The Digital Platform Commission Act builds the capacity a 21st century democracy needs to align our rapidly changing digital landscape with public interest, said the Center for Humane Technology. As Reclaim the Net noted on Twitter, the bill would, quote, empower a new federal agency to create a council that establishes enforceable behavioral codes on social media platforms and AI. The council will include disinformation experts. The bill also has age verification requirements, Reclaim the Net added. Harmeet Dillon responded, this is unconstitutional, also evil and stupid, and it definitely is all those things. The bill currently lacks specific safeguards to protect free speech and ensure that regulations implemented by the commission do not unduly infringe upon individuals' constitutional rights. 
Instead, it relies upon government appointed experts who would doubtless act to police state approved narratives and policies. Without robust protections for free expression, there is a risk of chilling effects in online discourse, as well as stifling innovation and creativity. So we were told last year that the disinformation governance board under the DHS was being done away with. And you'll remember the show tune singing communist Nina Jankowitz, who was supposed to run the disinformation governance board and all the hoopla surrounding that. And with all that in the back of your mind, this is CNBC yesterday. A secretive annual meeting attended by the world's elite has AI at the top of the agenda. OpenAI CEO Sam Altman will join forces with key leadership from firms like Microsoft and Google this week as a secretive meeting of the business and political elite kickstarts in Lisbon, Portugal. Artificial intelligence will top the agenda as the chat GPT chief meets with Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella, DeepMind head Demis Hassabis, and former Google CEO Eric Schmidt at the annual Bilderberg meeting. The tech titans will be joined by political heavyweights, including former U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg and Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitro Kubela, for a range of discussions spanning international relations, trade, energy, and finance. All in, around 130 participants from 23 countries are set to attend the private meeting, a similar number to previous years. Pfizer CEO Albert Bourla, BP chief Bernard Looney, Total Energy's CEO Patrick Pouyan, investor Peter Thiel, And a number of EU politicians will also be there. The three-day event, which this year runs from May 18th to 21st, is shrouded in mystery with clandestine talks held behind closed doors and subject to Chatham House rules, meaning the identity and affiliation of speakers must not be disclosed. That has sparked conspiracy theories, similar to those leveled against high-level meetings like the World Economic Forum in Davos by those who claim the attendees are seeking to establish a new world order. However, the event's organizers say that the discrete nature of the event is to allow for greater freedom of discussion. What is on the agenda in 2023? Key topics up for discussion at this year's meeting were published by its organizers Thursday, giving an insight into what it deems the most pressing issues in global affairs. AI, the banking system, China, energy transition, Europe, fiscal challenges, India, industrial trade and policy, NATO, Russia, transnational threats, Ukraine, and U.S. leadership. So those issues just by themselves, that set of issues, that represents many of the key issues involved with the advance of this quote unquote new world order. And again, it's not conspiracy theorists saying that. It's everybody saying it from back when George H.W. Bush was president to last year when Joe Biden's director of the National Economic Council called it a liberal world order. This is a common phrase in their lexicon and from their lexicon. It's not something that was made up by conspiracy theorists. The talks come as the rollout of artificial intelligence tools such as OpenAI's ChatGPT and Google's BARD have added to concerns 
around the rapid development of technology with Altman called to testify before the U.S. Senate on Tuesday. Meanwhile, the ongoing war in Ukraine and concerns over rising China threats have become a source of continued discussion among Western leaders, with signs of division in U.S. and European policy rising over recent months. And the article goes on to explain what the Bilderberg Group is and how it's no problem at all. It's just the richest and most powerful people in the world getting together behind closed doors under Chatham House rules to decide important things about the future and how everything's going to run. But don't worry, they're not plotting the future and how everything's going to run in secret, because that part is a conspiracy theory, even though it's exactly what they say they're doing. Now, speaking of Henry Kissinger, right before he gets to go meet his friends at Bilderberg, this is from Newsweek yesterday. Kissinger tells NATO to ignore Putin's threats. Henry Kissinger, a former U.S. Secretary of State and National Security Advisor, said in an interview published Thursday that NATO should make Ukraine a member, despite Russian President Vladimir Putin's warnings. For the safety of Europe, it is better to have Ukraine in NATO, where it cannot make national decisions on territorial claims. So despite the fact that this war is going on because NATO kept advancing into Russia's sphere of influence, now the idea is just to ignore Russia altogether and just make Ukraine part of NATO so that all of NATO can protect Ukraine's very sovereign borders. And as we mentioned the other day, they're going to have to steal Turkey's election to be able to do that, otherwise Turkey can veto Ukraine's ascent to NATO. Putin has said that one of his objectives for starting the war in Ukraine was preventing the expansion of NATO on Russia's borders. That goal backfired when Finland and Sweden were motivated by the invasion of Ukraine to apply to join the military bloc. Putin has been especially opposed to Ukraine joining NATO. During the early weeks of the invasion in 2022, Ukraine and Russia reportedly discussed Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky committing to not join NATO in exchange for a ceasefire, but that condition was dropped when peace talks were halted. Putin also said in a press conference shortly before the war began that Ukraine joining NATO might increase the chances of a Russia-NATO conflict that could turn nuclear. NATO Secretary Jens Stoltenberg has long supported Kyiv's admittance though the country joining while at war seems unlikely. Last month, he went so far as to say that Ukraine's rightful place is in the military alliance. What the Europeans are now saying is, in my view, madly dangerous, Kissinger told The Economist, because the Europeans are saying we don't want them in NATO because they're too risky and therefore we'll arm the hell out of them and give them the most advanced weapons. And how can that possibly work? He continued. We shouldn't end the war in the wrong way. Assuming the outcome is the probable outcome, that would be somewhere along the line of the status quo ante that existed prior to February 24th, 2022. The outcome should be one in which Ukraine remains protected by Europe and doesn't become a solitary state just looking out for itself. Kissinger's comments to The Economist represent a course reversal compared to a statement he made last year. During a September discussion with the Council on Foreign Relations, he said he, quote, thought it was not a wise American policy 
to attempt to include Ukraine in NATO. He softened that stance somewhat by the time he spoke at the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in Davos, Switzerland in January. Before this war, I was opposed to membership of Ukraine in NATO because I feared that it would start exactly the process that we have seen now. The idea of a neutral Ukraine under these conditions is no longer meaningful. Kissinger has also changed his stance in regard to Ukraine and its territory. When he spoke at the World Economic Forum last year, he said Zelensky should accept giving up land in order to reach an immediate peace deal with Putin. Now he seems to feel Russia will walk away from the conflict with little more to show other than possibly holding on to Crimea. We have now armed Ukraine to a point where it will be the best armed country and with the least strategically experienced leadership in Europe. If the war ends like it probably will, with Russia losing many of its gains, but retaining Sevastopol, which is the largest city in Crimea, we may have a dissatisfied Russia, but also a dissatisfied Ukraine. In other words, a balance of dissatisfaction. In another reference to Crimea, which Putin invaded and annexed in 2014, Kissinger said, I want Russia to give up much of what it conquered in 2014, and it's not my job to negotiate a peace agreement. He also said Russia would benefit from Ukraine joining NATO. He said, if I talk to Putin, I would tell him that he too is safer with Ukraine in NATO. So after 15 months of this conflict, Kissinger is changing his stance and actually going stronger on his position than before. Ukraine didn't need to join NATO before, but they do now, as if somehow those would be acceptable terms to Vladimir Putin. Now he's saying it's actually in Putin's interest to accept those terms, but there's no chance of that happening. I don't think anybody has been more consistent in their commentary on Ukraine than Colonel Douglas McGregor. And in his most recent interview this week, he talked about how not only would Russia hold all of the territory they've captured, but they will also be capturing Kursan and Odessa as well. So not only would he have his land bridge to Crimea from the east, meaning that Crimea does not exist as an island connected only to Ukraine, but would be now connected to Russia through the lands that they've taken over. But it sounds like he's trying to do the same thing to the west of Crimea as well. But here's what I think the most interesting Ukraine news of the week is. This is from the Daily Mail. This is from Tuesday. Putin and Zelensky agreed to meet African leaders to discuss peace plan. Vladimir Putin and Volodymyr Zelensky have both agreed to separate meetings with a delegation of African heads of state to discuss a possible plan to end the war in Ukraine, according to South Africa's president. Cyril Ramaphosa spoke with his Russian and Ukrainian counterparts by phone over the weekend, a spokesperson for his office said. They agreed to host an African leader's peace mission in Moscow and Kyiv, respectively. The leaders of Zambia, Senegal, Congo, Uganda, and Egypt plan to join Mr. Ramaphosa on the mission, the president said. He added that Mr. Putin and Mr. Zelensky gave him the go-ahead to commence the preparations. No details were provided on the possible parameters of the talks. Mr. Zelensky previously said he would not consider a peace deal to end the 15-month war until Russian forces withdraw fully from Ukrainian territory. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres was briefed on the African delegation's planned meetings and 
welcomed the initiative, Mr. Ramaphosa said. Now, the article goes on and on and on, as every Daily Mail article does. They discuss how some of these African countries are more West-leaning and some are more aligned with the interests of Russia. They call Cyril Ramaphosa and South Africa some of Putin's greatest allies on the continent. But they ignore the reason why that's true and the impact of what their alliance really is. And that, of course, is that South Africa is the S in BRICS. Now, Senegal and Egypt, which were both just mentioned as participating in these Russia-Ukraine talks, are both countries reported to be looking into joining that BRICS alliance. Here are the rest of those countries. And think about these countries, because a lot of what we've been discussing geopolitically over the last few months involves these countries. Algeria, Argentina, Bahrain, Egypt, Indonesia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Afghanistan, Bangladesh, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Mexico, Nicaragua, Nigeria, who we just discussed this week, and the attempts by the West to throw a Nigerian election for the globalists, Pakistan, Senegal, Sudan, Syria, Thailand, Tunisia, Turkey, Uruguay, Venezuela, and Zimbabwe. That is a pretty large and pretty significant list of countries who seem to be prepared to do something that the global regime will not like at all. There have been plenty of stories about the Chinese influence on Ukraine and the situation there. And now we have another country in addition to Russia out of the main BRICS nations getting involved in this Ukraine situation. And while that is going on, Joe Biden is in Japan for a meeting of the G7. This is CNN's coverage. Biden arrives in Japan and meets with prime minister ahead of G7. About halfway down the article, they have this heading planning for Ukraine counteroffensive. No other global alliance has been as important in maintaining Western unity following Russia's invasion of Ukraine than the G7. The bloc has been reinvigorated as leaders coordinate sanctions and billions of dollars in military assistance. That will continue this week when the G7 unveils new sanctions meant to close loopholes that have allowed Russian entities to evade the restrictions already in place. They are expected to hear virtually from Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, who will undoubtedly issue a call for more advanced weapons. Leaders are also expected to discuss the situation on the ground where Ukrainian forces are preparing for a counteroffensive with the help of billions of dollars in new Western military aid. The hope, according to U.S. officials, is that Ukraine can gain enough territory to provide Zelensky with leverage in eventual peace talks. But where and how those talks occur remains an open question. In the meantime, Fears among European allies are strong that the war could turn into a grinding stalemate. And we've seen reports all this week, people suggesting that this Russia-Ukraine conflict could go on for decades, years or decades. That's what they're saying now. Russia has killed upwards of 300,000 Ukrainian troops. If the reports are correct, they're destroying the equipment and the ammunition as it comes into Ukraine 
other countries are backing away from their support. They are running out of ammo to send to Ukraine, but still it's going to go on for decades somehow. The CNN article also mentions the recent military buildup by Japan. Japan has adopted a more robust foreign policy amid Russia's invasion of Ukraine and China's growing military assertiveness, a development welcomed inside the White House. In December, Kashida unveiled a new national security plan that amounted to the country's biggest military buildup since World War II, doubling defense spending and veering from its pacifist constitution in the face of growing threats from regional rivals, including China. The decision marked a dramatic shift for both the nation and the U.S. security alliance in the Indo-Pacific region. When Kishida made a secret trip to Kiev in March, he became the first post-World War II leader to visit a war zone, further cementing the notion that Japan's foreign policy was entering a new era. He also selected the symbolic city of Hiroshima, where he has family roots, to host world leaders. Destroyed by an American atomic bomb in 1945, the city acts as a reminder to the gathered leaders of the importance of their diplomatic efforts. More than 100,000 people were killed in the bombing. Biden is the second U.S. president to visit Hiroshima. President Barack Obama paid a historic visit there in 2016, laying a wreath in a memorial park and meeting with some survivors. And I'm sure that the wreath made it up to them in full. The bombing of Hiroshima hastened an end to World War II, but launched a new era of atomic brinksmanship. This week's gathering comes at a moment of heightened nuclear fears with threats emanating from North Korea, Iran, and Russia, each without a clear solution. And you have to think about how these situations are kind of polar opposites in a way. African nations and some BRICS nations want peace talks between Russia and and Ukraine, and they are preparing to attempt at least to facilitate those talks. Meanwhile, the G7 is continuing to voice their support for Ukraine in this completely and obviously lost cause. We have reports of this war extending for years or decades, and then we have Henry Kissinger reversing his prior stance and saying that it is necessary for Ukraine to be in NATO, which isn't possible unless they also steal the election in Turkey. So what I think we're seeing here is the expansion of this view that I've been discussing for a couple of years now. The real battle is between this global regime and the leaders of nations who wish for their nations and their people to remain sovereign. Now, we're accustomed to thinking that the U.S. and its historic allies over these past few decades have all the strength, all the military power, all the decision making power. And we're seeing that that's not true. Syrian President Bashar al-Assad is in Saudi Arabia right now for the Arab summit. He hasn't attended one of those in years because he has been marginalized and isolated. And guess who else is there? Volodymyr Zelensky. It seems pretty clear, at least to me, that an alliance of these sovereign nations around the world is forming and is wielding influence in a way that these G7 leaders don't seem capable of. They all united in this Ukraine cause 
And that has been a spectacular failure. Countries are leaving the regime's global financial system. And who are they joining? China, Russia, Brazil, India, South Africa. And we just went through the list of the other countries thinking of joining them. And now Volodymyr Zelensky is just having chats with all of them. What are we supposed to take all of this to mean? Well, it seems like the regime is rapidly losing power and that they are not the party with leverage to negotiate the end of this Russia-Ukraine conflict. This is the multipolar world emerging and the illegitimate president of the United States is busy stumbling downstairs in Japan and getting beaten back on the debt ceiling issue at home. The wheels are falling off. They're basically just driving down the freeway with sparks flying because the wheels are just all gone. No more tires, just wheels on the ground, go round and round, sparks flying everywhere. That is Joe Biden's fake presidency. I will be back on Monday at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. 
If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!